It says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, The guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, as we come to this passage here this morning, we're looking at a crucial truth to Christianity. In fact, it is the central focus of Christianity is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we look throughout the Bible, we see that the resurrection is the main message of Jesus Christ as we look at the Gospel and the ministry of the Apostles. In fact, as we look at it here this morning, I'd like to go through several verses that just kind of show the history. You know, you look as, as you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is made up of different parts. It's made up of the Gospels, where the Apostles tell us about the things that happened in the ministry of Christ. And so there were history as they were written. We also have the epistles, which are instruction about how to conduct ourselves, how to conduct ourselves as the church of Christ and in our lives out in society as individuals in the church of Christ as well. We have the book of Revelation that tells us about future things, and there's a couple other epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, that point to some of those things as well. The book of Acts is distinct. The book of Acts is different in that it is also a history book like the Gospels to be a record of the ongoing ministry of Christ as carried out through His apostles as He founds His church. And so the book of Acts cover the time span that all the epistles were written in, So as we cover the book of Acts, we see not just a statement about the resurrection, but we see that the resurrection was the continual message, the cornerstone message of Christianity from its very beginning all the way through the ministry of the apostles. 
And then, of course, it continues to this day. Look at the very beginning in Acts chapter 1. Jesus had told the, the apostles that they were going to be his witnesses, witnesses of his resurrection, and they would take that, that message through all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, on up into Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 22, they're wrestling with the idea of what to do about Judas. Judas had betrayed Christ, and he went out and hung himself, and so now they were down to 11 apostles instead of 12. And so Peter kind of takes the lead, and he says, you know what, we need to replace Judas, we need a twelfth apostle. And notice what it says. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Notice what the task is. The task is they would be with us as a fellow witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They recognized that they had a specific task by Christ to be a witness to his resurrection as they would proclaim it throughout the world. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, we find they're at Pentecost and this miraculous event happens and Peter stands up and begins to speak. He says, God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Peter in his very first message after the coming of the Holy Spirit focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Also in that same message, a few verses later, he says, this Jesus God raised up and of that... We are all witnesses. Shortly after that, Peter and John would go to the temple and they would heal a man that was crippled. Again, it would make an opportunity for Peter to be able to speak to the crowd. And he says, don't think that we did this by our own power. We did this in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, he says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. In Acts chapter 4, It says, as they were speaking to the people, so this is at the same event that we just read about, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so the subject matter that their enemies did not want them teaching about was the resurrection of the dead. It was the resurrection of Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so Peter, they don't want him teaching about the resurrection. So what does Peter tell them? It's because of the resurrection that this guy was healed. It would describe their ministry in Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In chapter 5 and verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In Acts chapter 10, we find a, an interesting point in the book of Acts. This is the beginning of a ministry toward the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, notice it says in verse 39, it says, we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he had risen from the dead. And then when he'd get up into Antioch, In Acts chapter 13, it says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children, in raising Jesus. 
Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul speaks with these philosophers on Mars Hill. And it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then in Acts chapter 23 and verse 6, says, It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And that is when Paul is finally arrested and he's on trial and he would stand before kings and witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the the part that I'd like you to remember is that throughout that entire span, the focus of their message was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Enemies of Christianity rightly discern that if you can dismantle the resurrection, then you destroy Christianity. If it were not for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have no Christianity. The church would never have been founded if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And the early church grew by the thousands right in the city of Jerusalem where He had died and risen from the dead. That could never have happened if He had not risen from the dead. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. We're looking at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as we do that, I find it interesting. Matthew surprises me a little bit as we get to the end of the book of Matthew. As we look through this passage, I kind of expect Matthew to quote Bible verses. But when we look through the death and the resurrection of Christ, there are a huge amount of prophecies that are fulfilled, and Matthew doesn't point them out. And the reason that surprises me is because earlier in the book, he was all about pointing out that Jesus was a fulfiller of prophecy. We get to the end where he fulfills all these prophecies, and Matthew just kind of doesn't really point it out. And so I wrestled with this passage. What is the point that Matthew is trying to make? What are the things that he's allowing us to see or showing us in the Gospel of Matthew? And so I kind of came to the conclusion that what Matthew wants us to see is just the responses of these people. Because that's what we find at the end of the book of Matthew. We find people. We find this guy Joseph of Arimathea. We find these two women. We find, we find the guards and we find the religious leaders. We find people and how they respond to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so that's what I'd like to focus on as we look at it this morning. These three proper responses as we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they are to exactly that. They're to the... We've got to keep those two things lumped together, the death and the resurrection, because we're looking at the transition of those things. When, when these people first come to the tomb, nobody expected the resurrection of Christ. The disciples are not hanging around outside the tomb waiting for Jesus to rise again from the dead. They're hiding in an upper room. The ladies that come to the tomb, they're not expecting Him to come out. They're bringing with them tons of ointments and perfumes to anoint the body of Jesus. And so they're not expecting Him to come out. The religious leaders, they are not expecting Him to come out. They just want to make sure nobody else does anything to try to upset their apple cart. And so they post a guard. The guard doesn't expect Him to come out. Nobody expects Him to come out. The part that we see is more of a response to His death than it is to His resurrection, though that would shortly come to pass. The first response to His death and resurrection that we see is a response of devotion. For this, I would look at Joseph of Arimathea. You could also include the ladies uh, into this, though I'm going to use them for another point. Joseph of of Arimathea, we know him from other passages in the Bible a little bit. And this is what we know about him. We know that he's a ruler in the Sanhedrin, which means he's one of the religious leaders of Israel. And so it's his group of people the Sanhedrin, that have been working tirelessly to put Christ to death. Obviously, he's not a part of it. 
We also learn about Joseph of Arimathea that he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but for fear of the rest of the Sanhedrin, he was one secretly. He did not let his faith be known to a lot of people. And we find we know also that he was a wealthy individual as well as the passage tells us. It's, it's really pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing because in the Bible, the prophecy that Matthew doesn't point to for us, it speaks of that. And back in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, written over 700 years before this happened, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, it's kind of amazing because when Jesus died on the cross, he obviously was put to death with the wicked. But then they take him and he's buried uh, with, uh, in, with the rich. He's buried in this rich man's tomb. Not usually how it happened. The, the people that were put to death on the cross were usually thrown in a common grave with a bunch of other people. And so Jesus actually would have been probably buried with the two guys that he was crucified next to in a common grave thrown in there. But Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus Christ. Now, this is amazing for several reasons. First of all, the timing. For him to go ask Pilate for the body of Jesus Christ and that Pilate would grant him the body. You see, part of the reason that Rome would throw you into a common grave with everybody else was kind of one more insult, adding insult to injury. It was through the cross that we looked at last week or two weeks ago. We saw that Rome used that as a way to say, you, you dared rise up against us. This is what happens to people who rise up against us. So it pointedly humiliated the people. And so the last step of just throwing them in a common grave continued that insult. Well, Joseph of Arimathea comes before Pilate. And think about what we know about Joseph. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Pilate would know that. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ, but nobody knows that. He's kept that hidden. And so Joseph is probably the only guy that cares about what happens to Jesus' body that can get the body of Jesus as a favor from Pilate. Because Pilate is going along with all this stuff, not because he wants to. He'd pronounce Christ innocent. But he's going along with all this stuff because the Sanhedrin is putting pressure on Pilate that if you don't give us what we want, we're going to create trouble for you with Caesar. And so as Joseph goes in before Pilate and requests the body of Jesus, Pilate just gives it to him. And so Joseph goes in, and so the, the timing of all these things to happen fulfills that prophecy that God had given to us through Isaiah. But Joseph of Arimathea, what I really want to focus on is what's happening within him. He's been a secret disciple. Do you know how that's got to feel? That, that you're trusting in Christ, but you're afraid to let anybody know? You're putting your status above your relationship with Christ. You're putting your financial, finances above your relationship with Christ. You've got to feel not very good about yourself if you're not going to stand up for your Lord and for who you are. And this is no small thing. Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so it's no small thing that he's keeping his discipleship a secret. But just at the right moment, he stands up. He goes into the praetorium, which is Pilate's palace, which would make him unclean for the Sabbath. They're within three hours of the Sabbath. That's a big deal. We've seen that in the religious leaders and the members of the Sanhedrin. Then not only that, he takes the body of Jesus and takes it to bury it. He's touched a dead body, and that also makes him unclean before the Sabbath. And so now all of a sudden, Joseph of Arimathea, who's been secretively everything, now he's stepping up, and he's not alone. If you read, I think it was in the Gospel of John, you find that he's not alone. Nicodemus also goes with him. Now, what do we know of Nicodemus? We know in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and it says, He came to him at night. 
Why? Because he didn't want the rest of the Sanhedrin to know he was going. He was, he was a member of that too. In fact, Jesus would refer to Nicodemus as the teacher in Israel when he responded back to him. Nicodemus would come to Jesus at night and say, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do the works you're doing unless God be with him. And then we don't know too much more about Nicodemus other than he gets, he's the one that gets to hear John 3.16 for the very first time. It's in that conversation. And it appears that Nicodemus came to Christ. And then at the very end, we find Nicodemus going with Joseph of Arimathea to handle the body of Jesus and to treat it properly at this time. And so now think about what's, think about the context of all this. All of the people that have followed Christ for three and a half years have forsaken their fishing nets and their tax collecting booths and their occupation and gone and followed Christ for three and a half years. The ones that have been there to see all the miracles and, and hear all the teaching and all that stuff, when it comes to the end of Christ's ministry, when He dies on that cross, they are not there. One will deny Him. One will betray Him. They will all scatter and leave Him. And these two guys who've denied him their entire, since they've known him, will step up. Isn't that awesome? The ones that have been stepping up in Christ's whole entire ministry and been willing to, even at times, to say, you know what, let's go die with him. At least we'll die with him. Even those, those ones of courage, when they would cower and fall away, these two that had been cowards will all of a sudden step up and be counted among the believers. And their stepping up even happens at just the right time that they get to be a part of fulfilling prophecy. Even though they don't anticipate His rising from the dead, they want to treat His body properly. They want to show honor and respect. They're devoted. Well, not only do we see devotion, but we also see worship. And from this, I would look to the ladies. It says in the passage here that when these ladies get to see Christ, when He reveals Himself to them, what do they do? They fall at His feet. And they worship. Why do they worship? It's because the resurrection shows Jesus to be who He is. All through the Gospels, Jesus has been proving Himself to be the Son of God. To be God in the flesh. And that's why when we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus, when He's worshipped, He accepts it. But when angels show up and somebody starts to worship the angels, the angels put a stop to it right now. The apostles do the same thing. When the Apostle Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake, and then nothing happens to him. He doesn't get sick or anything like that. The people think this guy must be a god. And they, they give him a different name, and they, him and Barnabas, and they start to worship them. As soon as he realizes what's going on, he's tearing his clothes. He's putting a stop to it. He's saying, knock it off. Stop it. I'm not. I'm just a man. But with Jesus, it's different. When Jesus, when these ladies fall at His feet and worship Him, He accepts it. When Thomas, who is largely known as Doubting Thomas, because when he first appeared to the apostles, Thomas wasn't there. And then when the other apostles told Thomas, he said, unless I can stick my fingers in the holes in his hand and put my fist in the hole in his side, I won't believe it. And then Jesus shows up to Thomas later and He says, Hey, okay, Thomas, go ahead. Stick your fingers right there. Stick your fist right here. Thomas falls on the ground and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't tell him, No, you get up. That's not me. He accepts it. Why? Because He is the Son of God. And that's exactly what the resurrection of the dead teaches us. In Romans chapter 1, in verses 1 through 4, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the resurrection is. It is a declaration that this is the Son of God. And through this miraculous way, three days after His death, 
He is risen from the dead. A proper response for those ladies was to fall at his feet and worship him. Israel has always worshipped God on the Sabbath. The church worships on Sunday, the first day of the week. And you know why we worship on Sunday? It's because that's the day Jesus rose again from the dead. Sunday is a, a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we worship on Sunday. Worship is an appropriate response to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so far we've seen that appropriate responses are one, devotion. Two is worship. Thirdly, I'd like to point to one that is, uh, uh, goes kind of unlisted. And the reason that I want to point to it is it's going to be a little bit of an argument from silence, okay? And the reason is because this is an element that you would uh, expect should have been there. It begs to be there, but it is just not there. And that is the proper responses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is belief. But we've already pointed out that on that morning when Jesus was to rise again from the dead, the apostles didn't expect it to happen. The guards didn't expect it to happen. The religious leaders didn't expect it to happen. The women didn't expect it to happen. You know, know, the only person that came close to expecting it to happen would have been his enemies. Jesus had taught the disciples privately on a number of occasions that he was going to be handed over and be put to death, and then he would rise again from the dead. As far as we can tell for certain, the religious leaders only had once, maybe twice, that they got to hear that information that Jesus proclaimed. Jesus told them, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and no sign will be given to it except for this one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Christ will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the grave. The religious leaders heard that, and they went to Pilate, and they said, we need to make sure nothing else happens. This guy said that after he died, he would rise again in three days. If only one of the disciples had remembered that. Nobody believed it, but it begs to be believed. In fact, the whole purpose of this passage and others like it is that Christ had to prove to his disciples that he was alive again from the dead. They had to be convinced that he was alive again from the dead. And that by believing, as John would write in his gospel, through believing they would have life in his name. And so a proper response to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to believe it. What we do see in this passage is an attempt to to continue to foster that unbelief. The soldiers go into the religious leaders and they tell them what happened. And the religious leaders tell them, tell everybody that you guys fell asleep and that the disciples came and took the body. You spread that for us and we'll get you out of trouble. There are several reasons why we cannot trust the soldiers. First of all, there's too much to be gained personally by the soldiers. The soldiers right now, since they've lost the body of Christ, they're in trouble. And a penalty like that for that could be as much as their own life. If they say they fell asleep, that doesn't get them out of that trouble. They're still in that trouble. But here's what the deal is, is they're in trouble if this gets to Pilate. So they go to the religious leaders instead of to Pilate. The religious leaders tell them, if you say what we want you to say, we'll do two things. We're going to pay you a large sum of money. And secondly, we're going to get you out of trouble with Pilate. They do have that ability. There's too much in it for them. Now, secondly, removing that stone without waking up the soldiers, I think it's got to be nigh into impossible. They probably had about a dozen soldiers there when you look at what uh, Pilate allowed them to take. And, and in fact, they would have had a dozen soldiers and they would have had a few watches of the night and the watches were broken into three hours. So they only had, uh, each soldier only had to stay awake for three hours at a time. Other than that, you could sleep. And they would have, with 12 soldiers, you'd have multiple soldiers for each shift of the night. And so it wouldn't be hard for them to stay awake. There was a large stone that was put there 
In fact, the ladies, if you read other Gospels, it says when they're on their way to anoint the body of Jesus, they're discussing among themselves, who are we going to get to move the stone for us? And so they got this large stone. If you can picture this group of disciples tiptoeing up among sleeping soldiers, some of whom may even be leaning against the stone, and get that stone moved out of the way in order to get Jesus out of there. If you can imagine them being able to get the stone out of the way and Jesus out without making enough of a ruckus to wake some soldiers who are supposed to be trying to stay awake, I find that very hard to believe. Also, if they were asleep, this is the one I love the best. How do you know? (laughs) The soldiers, when you think about it, they can logically, if they did fall asleep and they wake up and the body is gone, what do they know? They know... We went to sleep. They don't know anything else. Also, it says, though they, though they should have, no one was anticipating the resurrection. So in other words, this is a part where we look at the apostles. What were the apostles doing? They were hiding in fear. They weren't anticipating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the days after this, some of the apostles are going to say, you know what, I'm going back to fishing. Um, they're, they're, they're deflated. When Jesus walks along the road to Emmaus with two disciples and he says, why are you guys so troubled? They said, where have you been? We thought this was the guy, but they killed him. They're not, they're not trying to extend things. And then lastly, what good is a dead Messiah? You see, if Jesus is dead and they were expecting that he was the Messiah that would come and set up the kingdom, if he's dead and not going to rise again, then the kingdom is over. He wasn't the Messiah. we got to wait for the right guy, whatever. But a dead Messiah doesn't do anybody any good. And so for these guys to, to have this, to go and steal the body, to say that he rose again from the dead, even though he didn't, doesn't make any sense to me at all. Now, if we saw after that in their life, if we saw them having these great big ministries and drawing great big crowds and taking offerings with five-gallon buckets and... and uh, in other words, achieving some financial prosperity for themselves, achieving some position of power for themselves, in some way being benefited by this lie, then you could say, okay, maybe they did it in order to gain this advantage. But what do we see in the disciples' life? The apostles' life, they didn't gain any advantage through the, the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They become, they become hunted people. They become people that are arrested. They become people that are tortured and put to death in violent ways. They didn't gain anything positive from their experience. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he deals with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching was in vain. Your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is the truth that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle would list... uh, All these horrible things that happened to him. He was beaten with rods. He was beaten by the Jews that 40 minus 1 on five different occasions. He was stoned on different occasions and left for dead. He was hunted. He was pursued. And all these things that happened to him because he would not shut up about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, he asked in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, because I have been a faithful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, people have hunted me, pursued me, tried to... The one time he was lowered in a basket outside a wall to be able to get out of town safely because they were after him. Um, he says, I go through this kind of stuff every day. And if there's no resurrection for Je- for, from the dead, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then that's all for nothing. He's saying, if Jesus, if I wasn't completely convinced that Jesus rose again from the dead, then I would tell you this would be my life philosophy. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. And otherwise, live life for now because now is what you have. The Apostle Paul was willing to completely sacrifice the now. I die every day for what lied ahead. And what lied ahead is only a reality because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We should respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ with a level of devotion and a level of worship because this does declare him to be the Son of God. We should respond in belief. There is more than enough evidence to show us that these things are true, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God.